HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Tabard Inn, new American cuisine in one of Washington, D.C.'s oldest hotels, located in DuPont Circle. For more information, visit tabardin.com. Welcome to Meet and 3, Heritage Radio Network's weekly food news roundup. I'm your host and HRN's communications director, Kat Johnson. Before we get started, I just wanted to take a moment to mention that this year is HRN's 10th anniversary. If you want to keep food radio going strong, please consider becoming a member today. Just head to heritageradionetwork.org and click on the beating heart. We're excited to bring you many more episodes of Meet and 3 this year, but we can't do it without your support. Now, on to the show. This week, we're taking a look at what's going to influence the food you eat in 2019. This time of year, everyone loves to talk about diets and food trends, and we will tackle those topics. But we also want to look at how new legislation and scientific developments are set to change what and how we eat. First up, the new year inevitably brings predictions about forthcoming food trends. In years past, hot topics have included rainbow bagels, cronuts, and the advent of fast casual concepts. So what's in store for this year? Kevin Wheeler sat down with Ryan Sutton to find out what diners might see more of in 2019. When you eat out in New York City, chances are you're engaging with some sort of trend. And it's up to members of the food media to tell us about them. Ryan Sutton is one such member of the food media. He's the chief food critic of Eater New York. It's a job that often forces him to grapple with or at least consider trends. Sutton knows the power trends hold over the food world, so he tries to interpret them as responsibly as possible. I think what I try to do is not to comment so much on on weird social media-driven or social consultancy-driven trends, like, you know, milkshakes with a slice of cake sticking out of them, but more about how this impacts diners and, and how it changes the way we eat, and that's what I try to focus on more. Right now, Sutton is excited over a trend of new Chinese restaurants. These include places like Mala Project and La Silla. Both of these East Village restaurants have garnered positive reviews from Sutton. Mala Project specializes in a dry version of Sichuan-style hot pots, and La Silla serves Chinese crawfish boils. Sutton sees this as a positive trend. Chinese food in New York is expanding. While there's always been a, a brilliant diversity of awesome Chinese restaurants throughout the city, from Sichuan uh, to Uyghur restaurants to Cantonese restaurants, what you're seeing right now is these people in their kind of early to mid-20s um, 
again, some of whom just graduated college, that are setting up restaurants with uh, sometimes family money and kind of trying to serve foods uh, that, uh, at least up until this point, you don't see a whole lot of in New York. But even where trends might be considered bad, annoying, or simply created to generate likes on Instagram, Sutton believes that good trends endure and bad ones disappear. You're not seeing New York taken over by rainbow bagel shops, you know, but bagel shops have have survived. Uh, good pastry has survived the cronut. If anything, the cronut has helped pastries get more innovative. Uh, yeah, for a while you saw people doing weird things like cragles and whatever and, and, and quaffles or I don't know. But I think if anything, again, if we're not seeing a whole lot of rainbow bagels, you're seeing more innovation in pastry and more people paying attention to pastry. In that sense, the, the cronut uh, it was a force for good. At least I believe it was. Sutton respects the cronut because it's the product of a chef's vision, not that of a social media manager. Overall, Sutton believes that food media has done a good job of placing priority on the good side of trends. You know, the bad side of trends have largely kept themselves in, in check, and the, the food media has been smart enough about not devoting too many resources towards them in terms of a writing, in the sense that, you know, yeah, um, a website could theoretically devote all their coverage to these viral trends and, and get all sorts of hits. That's not a way to build sustainable readerships, just as it's not a way to build you know, sustainable restaurants. Despite the positive trends that have appeared in recent years, Sutton sees some scary things on the horizon. Given the economic instability of late, he believes we're going to see landlords continue to focus on mainstream French and Italian-American restaurants. They're always viewed as a sure thing. On a smaller, less expensive level, however, Sutton thinks there will be a lot of innovation. This is what's driving some of Sutton's favorite restaurants, like Kopi TM, a Malaysian coffee shop. Going forward, Sutton believes the city's dining scene is going to split. On one end, there will be what he calls high-end monotony, and the other will be low-end innovation. If anything, 2019 is shaping up to be a year where good, interesting food will be more affordable than ever. Speaking of affordable and innovative food, New York is known for the kinds of meals you can grab on the go from your favorite street vendor. While the hot dog reigns supreme for ages, in the past few decades, another cuisine has taken its place as the quintessential New York street meat. Picture a small platter of heavily seasoned chicken over a bed of rice, topped with a bit of red or green sauce and a lot of white sauce. This is halal cart chicken over rice. And in 2019, city legislation may be changing how it's served. Dylan Hoyer has the story. On January 1st, a ban on plastic foam went into effect in New York City. Every year, more than 30,000 tons of plastic foam makes its way into city landfills. And it's not just coming from halal carts, but a range of delis, restaurants, and shipping companies. In total, plastic foam amounts to only 1% of the city's waste stream, but the ban will have a far-reaching effect on New York City's entire recycling program. I talked to Bridget Anderson, who knows this better than anyone. I'm Deputy Commissioner of Recycling and Sustainability at the New York City Department of Sanitation. Bridget's department has been researching the impact of plastic foam for years now. It was 2013 when the City Council first assigned the Department of Sanitation to the project. We are collecting foam in our recycling collections, which also includes metal, glass, and other plastic materials. Could that foam be effectively sorted, bailed up, and then sold? The answer is no. 
After we throw plastic foam in the trash, it breaks up into tiny pieces and contaminates the collection of other materials that could be recycled. Even if the Department of Sanitation put in the effort to separate all of the foam, they found that there's no market for its sale and reuse. But despite these findings, lawsuits delayed the passage of the ban for years. Starting in January, the law is in effect. We have a six-month grace period where we're not issuing any tickets. And then this summer, we will have sanitation enforcement agents who will actively be writing tickets. Over the next several months, the Department of Sanitation will continue to raise awareness around the ban. They're partnering with organizations that provide alternatives to plastic foam and even making exemptions for small businesses and nonprofits that can prove the ban would cause financial hardship. But not everyone is having a seamless transition. My local Halal Carta HRN buys its containers from the garage where the cart is stored each night. It's called Grab and Go in Long Island City. They are allowed to park our location. They're supposed to buy their stuff here. Plastic bag, knife, fork, plastic container. That's Malap Hussein. He's the shipping leader at Grab and Go, which provides these goods for almost 70 food carts and 15 food trucks. At the beginning of January, the business switched from foam containers to aluminum. The one we sell before, that one price is like $10. The one we sell right now is cost like $23. Malop's purchasing prices have more than doubled and his sales have gone down. So right now, our business condition is really bad. The plastic foam ban will impact our city's recycling program for years to come. But in 2019, let's be sure to show our appreciation for the businesses who are changing their practices to enable a more sustainable future for all of us. And now we'll hear a quick word from our sponsors and be right back to check in on how your New Year's resolution's going. This episode is brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential hotel, is located on a quiet, tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the Tabard is comprised of 40 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on an eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant, or enjoy a cocktail and listen to live jazz in one of their cozy Victorian seating areas. Mingle with travelers from around the world who find the Tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit tabardin.com. Welcome back to Meet and 3. We now turn to Ariama Long with a story about that all-too-common New Year's resolution, dieting. Dieting sucks. And a New Year's resolution to diet sucks even more. But you're not crazy. There's actually a reason why the New Year diet seems to get in the way of your best body hashtag 2019 goals. Registered dietitian nutritionist Malina Malkani, who created the holitarian term for a lifestyle of eating whole, unprocessed foods, tells us why. We have overwhelming evidence at this point that diets don't work in the long term. And yet so many people, especially around this time of the year, around the new year, are determined to try the latest fad diet in the hopes that it's going to finally be the answer. As Americans, we love the idea of a, of a magic pill, a quick fix. And so dieting kind of fits neatly into that cultural fixation. 
Fad diets like the OMAD, the Paleolithic Caveman Diet, and detoxes are intense, but pretty popular too. But the OMAD diet, it's it's called uh, the one meal a day diet. So it's an extreme form of intermittent fasting where you're fasting for 23 hours in the day and only eating for one. And I don't recommend it at all. In fact, I don't recommend any quote unquote diet that you can't maintain as a lifestyle. A lot of people want to try a detox diet in the new year because they think that um, ridding the body of toxins, quote unquote, will make them healthier. And that a juice cleanse or a detox diet is a way to rid the body of excess toxins. And this is actually a myth. Um, our, our biological systems are very well adept at removing toxic waste as a part of metabolic processes. Meaning our organs like the liver, kidneys, lungs, and the digestive system do all that good detox stuff already. Unfortunately, we tend to hold ourselves up to some pretty impossible standards. And I think as a culture, we need to shift our thinking away from this paradigm that holds up thinness as the only way to be healthy. Is that why diets don't work? Everybody's metabolism is different. So we have different genetic coding that allows for different metabolism, and the metabolism changes depending on what season it is. So, um, you know, depending on activity and depending on your body type, depending what your needs are, different um, nutrition is necessary. That's performance coach and medical doctor Ava Selhub. She's actually tried the Paleolithic diet long term. And so what I did with the rest of my community was do these challenges where we do um, a, the Paleolithic challenge, which is really no sugar, no dairy, um, really very little carbohydrate intake other than a, some fruits and tons of vegetables. And it wasn't so much because I needed to do that diet for a year or I was strict about doing that diet for a year. I, I did it because it took me that long really to start changing the way I looked at food. Her diet wasn't about changing her weight. It was about changing her mindset about food. Even neuroscientists agree with Melina and Ava. The brain, or the hypothalamus part of the brain, really controls things like hunger and the range of weight your body wants to be at. Healthy, mindful eating, and only when you're hungry, is better for all body types and weights, as opposed to strict diets. For our final story this week, we're examining scientific developments of a food that you'll see a lot of in the summer months, the wonderful tomato. When the first heirlooms arrive at the farmer's markets in the spring, I can't wait to eat them with just a sprinkling of salt. What's not to love? The best tomatoes are a little bit sweet, a little bit tart, and a little bit savory. But imagine if you added spicy to that list of flavors. That's exactly what some scientists are trying to accomplish using CRISPR, a gene editing technique. Nina Medvinskaya takes a look at some of this new research. CRISPR is a tool used to conduct very precise genetic manipulations on living organisms. And it's the latest upgrade in the field of transgenics, or as I like to call it, gene alchemy. The premise is quite simple. With CRISPR technology, scientists take advantage of a specific enzyme to cut a strand of DNA at a specific location of a gene, and effectively trick a cell's natural DNA repair mechanisms into introducing a precise change or mutation. This technology has potential therapeutic applications for human health, such as correcting genetic conditions like cystic fibrosis. 
CRISPR technology has also been used in food and agriculture. One example involves vaccinating industrial cultures for products like yogurt against viruses. And when it comes to crops, qualities such as size and nutrient content can be efficiently altered using this technology. And although it sounds like something out of a sci-fi novel, it's actually based off of a practice that's been around for a lot longer than most people realize. This is not different to what we've been doing for conventional breeding, which is to induce mutations using chemical or physical treatments. This has been uh, going on since the 50s and 60s. Well, with CRISPR, you can do pretty much the same thing, but in a faster and more efficient way. That was Augustin Zogon, a professor of plant physiology in Missouza, Brazil. Together with his team of PhD students, Augustine is working day and night to introduce a very specific type of genetic mutation. By using the precise CRISPR technology, he's attempting to transform the tart flavor of a tomato into that of the spicy pepper. We've been working with tomatoes for many years now and also with with peppers. When the capsicum genome was sequenced a couple of years ago, we've noticed if you do a comparison, between the tomato and the capsicum genome, they both have very similar genes. And it turns out that some of those similar genes are actually responsible for creating capsinoids, the chemical compounds which account for the pepper's spicy flavor. Augustine is taking advantage of those spice-determining genes, which already exist in tomatoes, to shake up the tomato flavor most of us are so accustomed to. At first, it sounds like like a gimmick or like something that you would do for fun. The truth is, there is a real value behind it. And it's not to make like, you know, a prank pizza, you know, a margarita, so with hot tomatoes. It's the fact that capsaicinoids are very useful compounds. They are used as topic anesthetics. They are used as weapons, you know, pepper spray. It's not as random and funny as it sounds. But I think it has a, a real genuine benefit. And one of those real genuine benefits is that, if carried out successfully, this mutation can bring peppers to parts of the world that currently can't grow them at all. This is because the breeding potential of tomatoes far exceeds that of peppers, and this makes them much more of a cosmopolitan crop, and one that can accommodate a broader variety of environments. The tomato has been massively bred and improved over the centuries because it was introduced in in Europe in the 1900s and once it became popular you know people started growing it in their gardens whereas the same has not been the case for pepper and our idea was that if you use tomato as a platform to produce capsaicinoids we can take advantage of the more developed techniques that you have in the tomato to produce more stable a more reliable concentrations of capsaicinoids. Augustine's efforts to channel the pepper's flavor via the tomato's body made me wonder, what will this hybrid look like? And while, according to Augustine, making a tomato look more like a pepper is definitely possible, he's not concerning himself with the fruit's aesthetics until he gets the flavor just right. And he's prepping himself to do quite a bit of tasting. What people have been asking is, who is going to taste the tomatoes? I'm actually volunteering for that. I'll probably be the first one to to try them out. (laughs) As far as health concerns about genetically modified foods go, Augustine is not worried. 
He's more focused on avoiding chemically sprayed foods than genetically modified ones. And his tomato-pepper hybrid may actually work to minimize the need for such sprayings, since capsinoids are a natural fungicide. Whatever it is that you're eating, if it has been grown in a healthy manner that didn't require lots of spraying, well, I'll definitely go for that any day, even, you know, if it's transgenic or it's CRISPR. In that sense, to me, the real worry is how did you produce this fruit or this grain? How was it grown? What chemicals did you use to spray it? Because that is something that we know for a fact. We have evidence that is what's going to, to you know, potentially harm you. While this technology may sound futuristic, it's actually not as far-fetched as some make it out to be. And it's based off principles that are deep-seated in farming and breeding. I think it's plain God. We are actually doing what people have already done in a faster way. So we are not really creating anything that doesn't exist. You know, we are not some evil Dr. Frankenstein here working in the lab. It's just regular people trying to do what we think is best for, for everyone. Even though they're working endlessly, Augustine and his team still have many roadblocks to face. So we shouldn't expect to experience this mutated fruit anytime soon. It's quite expensive to, to carry out this type of research. So as is usual for scientific research, it depends on a lot of things that are um, beyond our control. So although we won't be seeing pepper-flavored tomatoes in 2019, one thing is certain. The realm of transgenic possibilities is quickly expanding, and its outcomes are largely dependent on how far people are willing to take their imagination. That's our show. Thanks for listening, and keep an eye out for another Meet and 3 next Friday. We're fighting the urge to hibernate to bring you a brand new episode about what's going on with food and wine during the dead of winter. Special thanks to Dylan Hoyer, Ariana Long, Nina Medvinskaya, and Kevin Wheeler for their reporting this week. Meet and 3 is produced by Liza Hamm, Hannah Forden, Katie Mosman-Wadler, and me, Kat Johnson, with lead production for this episode by Kevin Wheeler. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. Meet and 3 is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station produced with support from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs. Learn more about HRN at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio.